I'm Matt Ingram, a musician, producer, and co-owner of Urchin Studios in East London. In these podcasts, I'll be talking with creative individuals that I know and admire about music, art, the creative process, and of course, whatever else comes up. Joining me today is the music industry entrepreneur, Toby L. He is, amongst other things, co-founder of Transgressive Records, Love Live Media, and rockfeedback.com. Toby, you're basically like the busiest person I know, and I've realised the way to get you into a room is to give you the ability to like talk about yourself for an hour. So, <laughs> well, that is flattering. That <laughs> is flattering. It's a good start, isn't it? <laughs> it's really funny you say that, though, because like um, I've spoken to a few people recently. They're just like, so what's going on? And I'm like ultra brief, you know, because I think you get to that point where you're like, you get bored, like anyone gets bored of like sort of talking about what they do every day today and I think there was this great Steve Albini quote like we had once where he was basically like every person that does what they do every day they're allowed to resent what they do you know they do it every single day you know how can they you know like kind of like talk about it with that same sort of like enthusiasm and for me it's not like about lack of enthusiasm it's just like you know it's important to kind of like keep looking forward you don't want to like look back at every single thing you've done do you know what I mean so but I actually want you here to talk about yourself and normally I don't know if you've listened to these podcasts before. But I have. I listened, to, I listened to a few of them. I really liked the Betts one and um, I thought the Laura one was excellent as well. Oh, thanks, man. Um, but usually I, I do an intro and I was going to record yours before you came. And I'm like, I've no, I've no idea how to describe like, you know, who you are and like, what you do because you, you are basically like the, the busiest person I know and you do, like, I think, the most amount of stuff. So maybe people who aren't familiar with your, uh, your uh, oeuvre... <laughs> um, what what do you do, Toby? Who are, who are you and what do you do? Wowie. It's um, a big one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is a big one. Um, well, like, you know, I kind of like do quite a few things. Um, you know, my background was very much starting in writing and broadcast. So for me, you know, I've always been a huge music fan and that's always been like something from a stupidly young age. I remember like I was about two or three years old when I first tried playing a record. I like kind of like crawled over to the record player and I think I broke a stylus whilst trying to play the Pink Panther theme tune uh, <laughs> on my dad's vinyl player. And I remember that really vividly because I remember being really upset that I couldn't make the sound that my dad was able to make whenever he used that machine. I went over there and sort of like kind of like just put it on the wrong speed and then yeah, sat on it or something. Um, but, that, but from a young age, it was just always music and whether it's Top of the Pops or whatever programmes on TV, I just found myself gravitating towards it and then I bought my first cassettes when I was eight years old I bought like a succession of awful Europop that was like 1990 1991 like you know too unlimited all that sort of stuff um, and then like basically from that point I realised that music was the thing and then um, I then started going to shows when I was 10 um, well, do you remember your first like proper show mm. where you thought ah oh, this is this is it yeah it was um, it was a blur gig um, <clears throat> which is you know you speak to a lot of people and it's often like kind of like you know Simply Red or Bon Jovi yeah. <laughs> um, you know which is nothing wrong with those eyes but like for me I was really lucky it was like a, a, I you know I got a copy of The Enemy when I was 10 because I heard there was a music publication um, and, and I saw these shows in the back of, of the magazine and I saw Blur were doing an arena tour. I didn't re- At that point, you think Wembley Arena's like, you know, a standard gig. You know, you just turn up to Wembley Arena and watch a band um, and that's where everyone plays. So I got there and I went with my dad. And Do you remember it, the year? What, what year? That was 1995. So, yeah, I was, yeah, I was just about to turn 11 and um, it was during Blur's Great Escape Tour. And I remember just shaking with excitement as yeah. I was outside the venue 
And when I watched the show, like the whole thing literally just flew by and I it, it completely changed my life. Um, and at that point I started like kind of, I was, I was like writing poetry and sort of like kind of writing lyrics that I didn't really know what, what they were. You know, I was just sort of putting them down in journals and things and building all this stuff up. And then I started playing guitar and, and then before you know it, you know, I've always loved writing as well, and I thought, wait a second, I love writing, I love um, music, why don't I start, like, re reporting on these experiences I was having while I was at school? Um, and as I was kind of, like, getting increasingly isolated and outcast at school, it became more natural to sort of, like, put all these writings into one place, and that was when I started a website when I was 15. Um, and that was that was the beginning, really. And so, that, was, that was rock feedback? Yeah, that was rock feedback. Yeah. And uh, that was the sort of, like, beginning to everything, really. And uh, it was really lovely because... It was a very pure um, pursuit. There wasn't really any agenda other than just wanting to kind of, you know, sort of share enthusiasm about artists that I thought were important. And I think another sort of like dual track to that was that, you know, within some of those publications I was reading at the time, I felt there was a real creeping sense of cynicism and nepotism that affected the way the writers were talking about these amazing artists that I loved. Mm. So I really wanted the website to be an embodiment of positivity and celebration yeah. rather than one of disdain and cynicism. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that was the starting point, really. I, I think I, I know, I think everyone I know actually that works in the music industry, you're still the biggest fan. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's like 15 years of like working in, mm. in, in, in music hasn't dented your enthusiasm for it. You're always, you're always saying, you've got to check this out, you know, and it's, it's, it's great, man. Well, well, why do you think that is though? Like, it's interesting you say that, like, you know, it hasn't dented my, what do you think happens to other people or people generally? Like, how does that happen? I think people get caught up in, it, it becomes a job yeah. for a lot of people. So they get caught up in the politics, the power, uh, you know, and it becomes like a career mm. rather than there's that purity of emotion you feel when you when you kind of first get into music. Mm. That's just like like you've seen. You go to a gig and you're just like shaking with excitement and like this is this is the greatest thing. But I think when when you make your your hobby or the thing that you love your job, mm. I mean, I, I personally think I have to kind of keep myself in check mm. every now and again. I think it's important to to take breaks. Yeah, uh, like away, like away from away from music, mm. and like it just to kind of keep your love sort of th there for it. So, like I was saying at the beginning, you, you do like a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff. Mm. Like, what's what's your like sort of first love in all of this? It's an amazing question. Is it just to represent the music, or I mean, how how, how is it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that thing we touched on before, which is like it's about you know having that enthusiasm and sort of being able to express it in different ways. I mean. I think, you know, one common theme which sounds a bit cheesy is that, you know, I get to work with all my friends across all those companies. You know, like we're transgressive, you know, I work with Tim and Leela and the rest of the team, you know, and they're all, you know, first and foremost friends and secondly colleagues, you know, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with Rock Feedback, you know, whether it's Dan, who's sort of like kind of really built out the Rock Feedback concerts arm and stuff and all the people that came, you know, prior to that as well. Um, and then Love Live, you know, it's like, it's it's Richard and, and Tim and me again across that as well. And, you know, everyone else. It's like, there, there are people that we work with that are friends and partners in these companies. Um, and that is one of the things that makes it enjoyable. It's like, it's a community for each project. And then in terms of selfishly and personally, like, 
you know, I wake up every day and I don't know what's going to happen next. You know, the only thing that kind of indicates a general theme is my calendar. And that can vary from like working with an artist, you know, for, on a transgressive side, going into the studio, listening to what the next record's going to be through to, um, you know, someone like, you know, an icon like Robert Plant, who I work with on the Love Live side, you know, yeah. who I never so thought I'd be well, working yeah, with. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Well, I, um, like, I like talking about Led Zeppelin generally. Well, so I this think, is, this is cool. and why wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, the best rock and roll band of all time. Um, yeah, no, like, um, um, yeah, the Robert Plant thing's like kind of indicative of the things we're talking about, just like the way the laws of attraction and that network thing comes about. Like, um, I've made quite a lot of documentaries after starting Rock Feedback, I started making TV programs, and they went on MTV and Channel 4. And I still, to this day, still, you know, when possible, direct and produce a lot of, you know, music, films, and content. And um, with Robert, I had an opportunity to come up via his then label Decca to go out and make a documentary in America with him. And it's quite a funny story because, um, God, it feels like it's getting a bit Parkinson now. Hasn't it? <laughs> um, it was really funny because um, when I got into the air flying to Austin, Texas, where we were going to start filming this, this documentary, um, the shoot had actually been cancelled. But I didn't know because I'm obviously up in the what, air. Whilst you were, uh, whilst I was in the air on the way to make a documentary of Robert Plant. I mean, it's just pre-Wi-Fi on planes. Yeah, exactly. It was pre-Wi-Fi on <laughs> yeah. planes. So this is like 2009, 2010, or something like yeah. that. Um, and I land and I see a load of missed messages from Richard from from Love Live, and and I pick up the calls and. He's like, Toby, I don't know how to say this. You've just been, you know, 10, 12 hours on a plane, but the shoot's cancelled. Um, and I was like, what? What am I supposed to do? And, and they, there was a, some kind of miscommunication about when the shoot was going to be, whatever happened. But I'm in Austin, so I'm like, okay, what the hell am I going to do? So um, I decide I should still go to the gig. And I then have a couple of very awkward conversations with the tour manager and the manager, Robert, who were quite frustrated that I was there, but knew that it wasn't my fault that the shoot had been cancelled. They were frustrated because, you know, obviously we weren't there to film it. So it was a bit of a pointless quest, sure. if you will. But I go to the show and after the gig, I start sort of like kind of catching up with a few of the people, the crew and stuff and weirdly get invited to the after party, even though I'm not supposed to be there. And then <laughs> and then before you know, it, I meet the manager. She's really lovely. She then signals Robert my way to go. Oh, this is the crew that flew from London that aren't filming you. <laughs> and I was just like, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> was, it, was it just you? It was me and um, our friend Nick. Okay. Um, yeah, who was, who was filming Nick Abbott, who... Um, is a genius and now now lives in America. Um, yeah, and we were both just like, we felt a bit weird. You know when you go to a party and you just feel like everyone's having a great time you're sat on the bench like, oh, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and that was literally it. But Robert sort of like kind of interrogated us and looked us up and down and over two minutes, like I felt like, oh gosh, this has this gone well? Does he want us here? Is he just being polite? He was so animated and exciting to be around and I really fed off that energy. And then the next day, I think I got an email going, hey, come to the next gig on the tour, you can film. Uh, and I don't know how that happened. We must have said the right thing or I don't know done something but then we ended up making a documentary which went out in America and and to this day the last five six years we worked with Robert on a lot of his filming affairs and many other creative matters so going security back to what you what you were asking you know um you know like any given day is different and you know I, I personally love making documentaries I love staging events and putting on shows that people enjoy because I just absolutely love music live music um I still love writing when I get the opportunity to, although it's not an, enough. Yeah, are you, are you, know? you still writing, though? Yeah, uh, it's it's literally, it's when I can, as opposed to, you know, by design, if you will. So yeah. um, it's it's fit into everything else, you know. Um, you know, like, I kind of, I know that the, the time will come back full circle where a lot of those moments will come. Right now it's about doing as opposed to theorising and thinking and documenting sure. in that way. Sure. So yeah. I, I got a love, i got to say, I got a love of writing from 
I wrote for Rock Feedback for a bit. You did? Yeah, and I and I really... And just to go back to what you were saying, I think that was a really interesting... Because I've always been a musician first. Mm. There was a really... It was a really great experience to, to write about music as a fan. Yeah. Like it's, it, it, and, you know, and also, like you're saying, when, you, when, you, when you're going to gigs a lot, when you're writing about gigs, just, just the, the people you meet, the other fans, mm. and, and it, it's, it was great. It was, it, was, it was really cool. And I still, I still like to write whenever I can, but, yeah, I, I, have, I have less time. It's, it's, it's tricky. It's like, you know, it's that old cliche, oh, you've got to make time. But, like, it does get to a point where, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky and blessed to have, like, a lot of responsibilities now. And, you know, it, it does feel like something that I can't sort of, you know, take two hours out of a day of to just sort of like, eh, this was what's on my mind. I'm just going to put it down. You know, like, I've got, I've got, you know, things that people are expecting me to do. So... Um, so that luxury isn't quite there in terms of that, but you know, I think it really is important to every now and then like kind of, you know, empty what's in your, your mind and your heart and put it down authentically, you know, mm. cause so much does whiz by and you know, these years keep going by quicker than we all think. And you know, before you know it, we'll be the, uh, the old people. And, um, <laughs> and so it is important to sort of cherish those moments and put them down, I think. Yeah, yeah. no, no, ab- ab- absolutely. But listen, I wanted to talk about the... The Foles records. Mm. What what was your involvement in in the Foles records? Well, the thing with that band is that they've just become like increasingly their own creative force, you know. And you know where where Tim and I sort of factor in is we, you know, we're we're really privileged in that you know when they ask our advice, we're you know honest and they listen to it, and we have difficult conversations sometimes. And I think you know from our perspective, like we really help them sort of like kind of believe in their own brilliance, you know, and any artist around the planet has moments of like vulnerability and whatever. And they as a unit, like anyone else will have those moments. And like for us, it's just about empowerment and supporting whatever they want to do. You know, like the thing that's unique about Foles is that you've got, although there are like kind of certain figureheads within the band with very defined roles, like as a collective, they are a gang and um, I think that's why people connect to them because there aren't five people playing at an equal standard with equally incredible insights, often in a group. Yeah. Um, at their age and having got four albums into the game, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you know, I think their latest record is like testament to how well they've gelled as a unit and how you know really they can do anything now. And yeah. you know having creative conversations with them is now really exciting you know whereas before on the first record it was kind of like you know wow who would be the fantasy person to work with or where could we make this Flood and, and Mulder yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> Flood and Mulder was album three. First yeah. album was Dave Seatech TV on the radio second record was like with the you know introducing Mulder into the fold you know so w- would you yeah. say would you would you say you're a kind of an A&R um so I have an issue with that phrase. Yes, okay. Then I wanted to talk about this. Yeah, so like for me like A&R is like a really traditional phrase and it it can be construed in different fashions. It's like if you think about the definition, it's like artist and repertoire. So an artist and repertoire person at any company could be someone that just knows a catalog or knows, you know, has a relationship with an artist is in charge of like working their repertoire, you know, like um for me it's like, you know, we anyone we work with, whether it's, you know, 
like a kind of brand new band or a band far into their career. We are, you know, we are literally just supporters of their creative work, you know. I mean, and Falls is, a, you know, it's it's a more complicated arrangement because, you know, when Transgressors started, you know, we had a, we very soon into it, we did a deal with Warner Brothers and, mm-hmm. you know, so there were a lot of people involved, um, you know, down the, down the way. But, you know, over the years, like that friendship with Falls and that creative relationship has just always been there, you know. And so for me, it's, it's, it kind of, it's not, easy to answer that question you know it's like and I, I also wouldn't feel like it's authentic because I don't want to I don't want to say to any artists we've ever worked with we're their A&R people I'd rather say we are you know creative support you know so do you think do you think A&R has kind of just bad connotations now maybe that's also the other part of it is that apart from its definition like maybe some of the associations that anyone whether they're in the music or not gets with that phrase is what's about to be seen in the kill your friends film you know like <laughs> um you know it's it does seem a bit out of date maybe sure. i think also as well artists as i said earlier more in control than ever so the idea you need an a and r person or people have a and r people i don't don't know if that that is necessary i mean one thing i will say is that you know uh you know we will always challenge our artists if they work with us on transgressive because you know like if they want to work with us what's the point just having like a kind of you know like I guess sort of ego parade it's like we're going to challenge people and so you know you, people can you, still totally tell us to go away you, you feel know? it's important to to challenge your artists and support your artists 100% and and, and where yeah. where do those two things clash sometimes so my understanding of support and this is an interesting you asked that question my understanding of support is not always just saying yes to someone sometimes support is tough like yeah you know this is what will be good for you you know and it's a difficult conversation you know um so for me support definitely entails like occasionally having difficult conversations you know but that but always with the caveat that love and you know love and that underlying basic level of comfort are always there but Mm. sometimes you do have to say look you know i know you want to go that way but if you considered this other option and you know what happens if you did that instead and you know why not try this you know yeah i mean i mean i i feel i feel my job as a as a producer or a drummer or an engineer or or whatever (laughs) whatever it is 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 the same in in the I need to essentially support an artist. Mm-hmm. I support their ideas, get involved in their their kind of creative heads, mm-hmm. and become just to understand like the kind of fabric of what it is they're doing. Yeah, and yeah, and to definitely speak kind of speak my mind if I feel that like they're not they're going down a road that's you know I'm not I'm kind of not sure about this, but I I feel that's a tough one because. It's not my record, I, you know. It is the artist's record, and, I, and I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure you'd agree with that. I think I completely agree with that. I think you've got to fan the flame of what's existing and yeah. harness the creativity that exists. I can't. I don't think you should go in there and try and deviate from what is effectively those people in the room. You know, yeah. it's about developing and harnessing that power rather than trying to, you know, fit it into you know my distorted, perverted view of what is great. You know, like for me, it's about what can these people produce that is you know both within their grasp but also slightly eluding them you know and 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 that's that to me is support you know yeah, hopefully sure. allowing people to believe they can achieve more than they think they can absolutely i I think the most powerful thing i've learned in the creative through the creative process is that if things are going really well <laughs> if everything is sounding awesome don't do anything don't say anything don't just just keep it just keep it moving. I think that's where a lot of people in that that work in the creative industries don't I feel like don't understand because you know when someone gives you a demo 
that's awesome. That demo is awesome and that got you excited because they were just unencumbered by anyone's opinion and they were just doing this thing. It's like, this is amazing. So, yeah, that's so, so I, feel, I, feel, I feel that is a really... But, but also, definitely speaking up if, if you think they're going into a sort of artistic cul-de-sac. You're, 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 you're 100% correct. I think a lot of the time, people that aren't involved in artists or band dynamics on the peripheries and wanting to get their awe in, they will just, you know, meddle for the sake of it to, to make them feel like they've been heard and that their ego's resolved or whatever. I mean, a good example recently for a transgressive signing, we signed a uh, band called Gengar, and, like, you know, they've had, like, a wonderful year, like, really building well, amazing sort of, like, kind of acclaim for the record. But that's a great example where loads of labels wanted to sign them, but we were apparently the only label that said, we love your demos, we think they're kind <laughs> of great as they are, why don't you work with the guy that engineered them? And they apparently looked at each other and were like, oh, shit, this is the first time we've met a label that, like, yeah. like us for who we are, and... And that was a genuine thing. And we ended up making the record with the guy that did produce the demos. That's and awesome. and we just mixed them up a bit and played around with them. And that was it. And I, I have to say, Toby, you, as someone that works in the music industry, and particularly, you know, on, on the, the business side, you are someone that understands the creative process, which is great. <laughs> um, which, is, no, which is great. And, it, and it's, what, it's what artists and musicians and the creators of music really want. You know, but and, uh, that's that's yeah. I think it's also like kind of what you know what we were saying earlier about like you know my background was very much coming in it from the creative approach. I did not have a business plan, neither did Tim when we started a lot of our company stuff. Like, did you not? No, absolutely not. We didn't have a fucking clue. <laughs> was, like, it just, was it just an excited pub conversation? It was an. It was literally <laughs> that. That like, was that like was, we, that was the same for me and Dan. Yeah, this new urchin was just we were in the pub giggling. You <laughs> going, let's do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like to be honest, not much has changed since then. Like you know, like. <laughs> I love that. And, and the reason I say that is that, you know, hopefully for the people that do listen, it's like, if you've got an idea and want to do something, just go out and do it. And the irony is I've been in other parts of organisations and things as, as things grow up and get bigger. Of course you have to write business plans. Well, we, of course you have to do these things. But to an extent, like the thing that matters most is your impetus and your inspiration. Like you can write a, pl a business plan, but if you can't achieve it, it won't mean anything. It won't mean the Excel spreadsheet it's been typed <laughs> up in. You might yeah, as well yeah. just come at something with complete blind passion and faith and everything else will work out. Yeah, no, 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 no absolutely. But, but going back to uh, Foles and, um, yeah, this, this kind of term a and I, I totally know what you mean about it. It's, it's uh, perhaps an outdated thing. But I saying that, I have worked with some guys, a couple of analysts who I think are really good. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I, I, on the, on the Do you want to name them? Or are you I'm being... going to name them. Yeah, cool, name good, them. you yeah. should. You I should name I don't know if you listen to this. Name and celebrate. When we did uh, Laura's album, Chris Briggs, do you know Chris? I don't know Chris actually. He's like he's 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 like old school. Um, he, he's brilliant because he he came in and we done. I think we done like the, the we tracked everything, and you know when whenever anyone else that's the thing. Whenever anyone else that's outside the process comes in and listens, that's when you know. That's when you know if it's good or not. Because I don't know why, but when you know, you... in a heartbeat though, when they walk in the room, <clears throat> but th their energy, you can just tell if that yeah. person's going to contribute or sap. Yeah, do you know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Uh, completely, completely. And so, so he came in. He's just great. He's just really, he really understands her as as an artist. He understands her placement in, you know, culture. You know, where she is, and he just made like really great points that were really broad and I, I, can't, I can't exactly remember what he said but 
he just like focused on a few things didn't use any like wanky musical terminology very important <laughs> you know just, oh, it needs it needs a bit more uh, compressive eq <laughs> you know all that something <laughs> he was just great he was just and and kept and just but fundamentally understood the the process and what everyone was doing when you get great a and r people um you know they can like really transform projects and they can again inspire people you know and you know, you look at the the sort of legacy of A and R, you know, as it used to be and as it still remains to a certain extent today. You know, like people like Seymour Stein at Sire Records or Alan McGee in Creation and Jeff Travis in Rough Trade. You know, like again, people that inspire and challenge artists. You mm. know, and along the way, like kind of like not only find and unearth incredible life changing art, you know, but also know how to like kind of like bring it to public attention mm. and there is definitely a talent and skill involved in that and you know and all, I, and all those people you mentioned you know they just come across as big music fans yeah whenever you see them in interviews it's just like they still just, go to gigs they, they all get, those, those people that are just listed you know like seymour stein you know is he's still vp of warner brothers america he's still running site like you know he's still at shows you know and i remember one gig i i, I invited him to uh i i kind of like you know, I thought at one point he fell asleep because his eyes were closed and he was just watching the stage, but somehow pointed in the right direction of the stage. Um, and at the end, I was like, oh, Seymour, you're right, you know. And he quoted the lyrics back of the, the, the <laughs> like, so he was somehow sleeping and watching the show, which was like mm-hmm. incredible. But um, yeah, so no, there's definitely, you know, like for every great artist and musician, there needs to be people, you know, behind the scenes supporting them to hopefully help them make the best stuff they can do. You know? De- definitely. And, and I think every artist that I've worked with who's been doing well and also has interesting output that is relevant to sort of who they are. Uh, it's always had good management and good label people, you know. So do you, do you want another beer, mate? Yeah, always. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's, let's take a beer break. <laughs> I mean, you obviously still go to gigs. You're, st- you're still... You're All still, the time. You're still down the front. <laughs> Actually, that's true. Like, I still... I still but you know like kind of like it's it's it sounds awful doesn't it still go to gigs but like i mean no, it, i do as well too yeah but like but the, the reason you say it in that way is that like you know you do get some people that are privileged to work in music and work closely to music and they do start slowing down that attendance or stuff but yeah i mean i i buy tickets for gigs all the time you know like i just bought tickets to see uh recently bought tickets to see patty smith <laughs> for the roundhouse and i can't wait for that gig when, like, is, she, when is that that's <laughs> that's the end of october both sold out unfortunately mm. yeah like I, it's I, yeah, I, I saw I saw Patty Smith. I was playing at the Liverpool Academy. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you know it's, it's got three rooms. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the one. Yeah. And um, we were. I was playing in like the the the, the small one. Mm. I was like a proper. I've forgotten who I was playing with, but there was like there was like no one there. Is that the weird amphitheatre one? No, right. that that's used to be the bar flight. Oh yeah, it was, wasn't it? That yeah. was an interesting room. That was a, that was an interesting room. Yeah. I, um, but anyway, so I was playing in like the Academy Three. And and Patty Smith was playing at the, the kind of main room, and I was like I was like doing a support tour first on, excuse me. And after the show, after our show, I went I went downstairs and managed to get like to the side of stage for her gig. Amazing. I don't think I've any I've seen anyone as charismatic as that. I think this. It's that, just like oh my god. So, so this is it. Like you know, at Glastonbury this year, like you know, she came on, she brought the Dalai Lama on stage as you do, um, <laughs> sang Happy Birthday to the Dalai Lama, which is one of the funniest things in my life. What was amazing was that I've never seen so many people cry during a gig ever. Like, and the te- you know, the whole field was just completely packed out. 
And it was just an extremely moving performance. And at one point she fell over on stage and I was just like, this is a disaster, you know, 100,000 people. You start getting that kind of like yeah. awkward audience thing. Yeah, yeah. But she owned that moment. She got up after the show, she goes, some of you might have seen that I fell over just then. It's because I'm a fucking animal! <laughs> and screamed. And she managed to take it like this kind of moment that any mere mortal like the rest of us in the field would have been like, oh, that's embarrassing. And managed to completely destroy it. And yeah, so to answer your question, I'm always going to shows. And um, I think, you know, I think the thing about live versus recorded is that like it's the ultimate way to see artists express themselves. You know, mm. like you're visually seeing what they're about. You're you're seeing their personality. You're seeing that conveyance of everything they've written and built up to at that point. And, you know, the best artists realise that live, you know, even if you've got loads of dates in the diary, remains a very crucial element of, yeah. you know, what you stand for as an act, you know, yeah. as, a, as an artist. I, I think it's a shame that a lot of venues are going... The, the, the you know the the well the Buffalo Bar's gone. Yep. It seems like a lot of venues that I played, uh, and still played, mm. you know, um, sort of ten years ago. A lot of them are, are, are disappearing, which is quite sad. It's really weird because if you do, you remember like I mean one of the first times I met you, Matt, was like in the early two thousands, like um, when was it, there was, was that the Cashmere Club. Yeah, exactly, Cashmere Club, which is not gone. And so, it, just to say, just to say, just to give it a, a bit of backstory to it. To, to our listeners <laughs> I met Toby at uh, the Cashmere Club watching Regina Spector I still think about that gig yeah she was fucking outstanding she was the first the thing was amazing about that she was the first artist we signed to Transgressive the first album we ever oh, released yeah, was Regina Spector yeah it was Spectre. Soviet Kitsch yeah that's record it wasn't Soviet Kitsch it was it was songs no it was a compilation was of those it? records Sorry. there you go that's where really? I'm being anal okay. for anyone listening <laughs> this is really annoying but um, yeah but like yeah that venue doesn't exist um, I know that you and I used to go to the Metro on Oxford Street that doesn't exist um um, I, I feel that Rhythm Factory is now closing down yeah I feel that like it's kind of shifted because there's definitely still gigs going on and there's definitely still music venues but they're kind of bigger and they're more like organ like organized like there's more like it's official yeah it's official there's more like kind of village undergroundy type venues perhaps and, yeah. and like and now like every uh every town's got like like an academy it's got like a kind of thousand see a kind of place that's all well run and and stuff but it's your kind yeah it's your kind of rhythm factory buffalo bari which is where bands need to kind of Get but you know go in be awful for a year. <laughs> you know that's really important. Everyone really important. forgets that every every artist is a bit shit when yeah. they start. <laughs> like I'm sorry, David Bowie wasn't born that that guy we all know him for. Like on the artwork, he was you know he was at his own mission pretty god awful for a long time. And yeah. you know like and that doesn't mean that like he was you know quantifying that a bit more specifically. It's not like he was awful, of course. It's like but. Everyone needs to start out a bit like unsure and mediocre and then yeah. become fantastic. You know, there's always a crucial moment in everyone's career where they go from being a mere mortal and human into being a genuine artist. And, yeah. you know, those venues, those really small shitty venues is like when you find that voice, you know. Um, and yeah, I I do feel like it is hard. You know, with, with, the, with the rock feedback stuff, we still promote a lot of shows that are that level. You know, we've got a show happening next week, which is 80 capacity in North London. So we'll awesome. always... That's, that's awesome. Who, who's that? Um, that's uh, an artist we also work with on Transgressive called Blind Avon. Um, it's a really small venue in St. Newington called The Waiting Room. And, you know, it's really important to um, nurture brand new artists and brand new venues, as it were. And kick it off and take it as far as it can go you know mm. it's really important so who, who have you who have you seen that's good by the way just i fucking hate that question when people question? ask me 
Uh, who have you seen that's good recently? Oh right, new artists. Um, yeah. So so yeah, um, I I you know no you go on. Who have you seen that's, that's oh gosh like. There are these two girls from Norwich. I've still yet to see them live, but I've watched videos online and um, they're called Let's Eat Grandma. They're two <laughs> two teenage girls that come from Norwich um, and they are like, I was about to go on holiday a few weeks ago and this email came in with the subject saying, Let's Eat Grandma. And, you know, I'm, I'm you know, in the fortunate position where like people send us music all the time for our consideration, which is amazing to either feature on Rock Feedback or Transgressive or Love Live and... And I just saw that subject and I was like, look, I'm, I'm about to literally get packed, but I've got to listen to this band because that title. Um, and I put it on and I watched the video and I emailed everyone, at, you know, at Transgressive and Rock View. I was like, guys, I'm about to get on the plane. But seriously, like, trust me, I know the name's a bit weird, but this is amazing. And, you know, fast forward like eight weeks and apparently five other record deals they got offered, you know, right, they, yeah. they fortunately chose us. And... They're they're really exciting. They musically remind me of little else. Really, they they are. And that's that's always the best. It's always the best when you can't describe it. You're like, like they don't have any parameters. There's one song, you know, in which one of the the, the members raps, um, and she, you know, she isn't like really a rapper. Um, a lot of it's kind of synth based and keyboard based. Some of it's like ukulele based. Some of it's <laughs> electronic, like Bjorky territory. It's really diverse and uncategorizable and you know i think that's what i'm attracted to i'm attracted to the unsung and the um outsider um you know i'm I'm always looking personally for the people that have potential appeal to change lives but aren't coming at it from the obvious angle that's my personal thing yeah yeah absolutely so you've you've obviously worked with and and, and signed to transgress with some some pretty really amazing amazing artists uh what do you? I, mean, I won't ask you what your favourites are because I'm sure that they're all they're all your children <laughs> in like in a certain way. But um, just you know, for the but listeners. what are your favourites? <laughs> Who do you love more? <laughs> um, do you want to know like in terms of like? I'll tell you of... my favourites. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be nice. Just, yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> I genuinely, and I'm not just saying this because you're here. I, I genuinely think one of my favourite singles. Ever is Zoo Time amazing by the and, and, yeah and and the the, the one that you, the one that you put out because um, there was a slightly different version on the album there was a different version yeah yeah the, yeah, the, yeah. The they, tram- re- they re-recorded it which is still it's still awesome and they're an awesome band but there's something I just think Zoo Time it's just I mean saying what you're talking about about you know uh, championing the, the 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 strange outsider I mean wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah the mystery jets tick that box um, yeah and, and, but that, see, that that version of Zoo Time. It, it, it it's absolutely it's one of the most inspired things to come out in like the last 15 years you know? I think it's it's for anyone that hasn't heard it that's listening it's definitely an essential recording it's mm. like I think it's something that will be revisited in decades to come when people look back at the early 2000s and mid, yeah. you know like mid decade 2000s of you know 2015 into 20 and stuff and just everyone's gonna be like what what was that band about and yeah. that song and recording were amazing and you know, they also have unheard, you know, recordings from that time that were like absolutely spellbinding. And yeah, I really? think maybe they, oh, mate, they, they need to see the light of day. <laughs> well, the band have moved on so significantly yeah, they have, they have. that they kind of, um, you know, they look back at that time with an equal amount of like, oh, that was sweet. That was nice. But also kind of like, oh, that was a bit cringe. You know, yeah, well, you I, could I, tell I, that we went to King I'm, Crimson. I, I'm, I'm sure Barry looks at his leotard days and goes, 
Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't. He was hot. He pulled that shit off. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, I think I think Zoo Tom's a great contender for one of the best songs we've ever released, which is kind of like both equally exciting and equally depressing when you realise it was the third release we did. But um, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was like pretty straight. But you, straight you, up. you, you've got to work with them. <coughs> I know you know you're you're a big Blur fan. Yeah, uh, to say to say the least, <laughs> as um, evidenced earlier. You, and you got to work with Graham Coxon. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, that album is like it's I, a great. I, Really it's a beautiful album yeah. and you know it was really well revered and people still mm. come up to us and say that album is like their favorite mm. of his work and and also i think some of the feedback that was quite amazing was that a lot, a lot of people that didn't necessarily like blur coming up and saying i love that graham coxon record and you know um I, th- I think it really was an important moment in his career where he really differentiated himself you know some of the musicians on there you know whether it's david graham or like robin hitchcock and you know he he rekindled his relationship with stephen street which he hadn't done since um, the eponymous Blair record, you know, so it had been like years since they worked yeah. together. It was a very significant album for many reasons. And I went all- to that. I went to the gig. I think you. I think you got me in. Thanks, man. I went <laughs> to a lot of gigs. Thanks to you. But um, <laughs> he played the Roundhouse. Oh yeah, and it was great. Yeah, it was just yeah, mostly acoustic and uh, wonderful gig. He's yeah. just he's just um, he's an auteur, you know, and he's coming at things from a completely unique perspective and. You know, like you can't really sort of emulate that. You just have to be that, mm. and that those are the eyes that we we look for. And and then weirdly, we now work with um, you know. Speaking of the Blur connection, we now work with Damon a lot on his Africa Express records. So yes, so, you know, that's what, that's what I wanted to say. We we had um, uh, song uh, song blues in here. Amazing and um, wow, what what a what a interesting bunch of guys. That's a proper band. Yeah, wow, it is. Yeah, and I didn't <clears throat> see. I was on I was on that session. They came here to re-record, as you're probably aware. There are, yeah, they're on your label um, <laughs> to re-record, re-record some vocals, and um, just the spirit of that band. And then the, the lady that's making the documentary about them, Joanna Schwartz. Yeah, she came in, and I got. I'm. I didn't know their backstory. Oh yeah, and and she. But maybe just to explain the backstory of them. For, for of course, I think you know. I think the thing about Songhai Blues is that it's not just a band; it's a whole story of their country you know they mm. originate from Mali um, obviously Western Africa and um, basically the last five to ten years it's been documented pretty well by the left media not necessarily all the mainstream media uh, have documented the story that accurately or correctly but um, you know effectively you know there was a big sort of uprising in the north of Mali um, where loads of jihadists came in and like invaded effectively and a lot of people that were you know kind of doing music or anything creative or even many other vocations were kind of marginalised. Well, they, they banned music, didn't they? Yeah, and, and that's they what it led to. Music, yeah. music was banned. Um, I can't conceive of such a thing, you know. I, I think that's the thing, you know, we forget how liberal and brilliant our society is, despite the fact there are obvious political challenges that are well documented on social media <laughs> right now, but we are fundamentally able to speak our minds, and yeah. some countries do not have that opportunity. And So Songhoi Blues basically... You know, they were a band and friends long before this kind of thing broke out, um, and just gigging around Mali, and then they decided wait a second, we need to keep this band together despite the fact it could cost us everything. And they basically kind of went into a relative form of hiding by, you know, going from the north of Mali down to Bamako um, and spending more time there and rehearsing and getting great as a band. And if anything, it kind of made their band more important because they actually had Absolutely. a political agenda. Absolutely. It wasn't and, just... And, the... and, and they were a band under... You know, they could have they died. And they were putting on gigs. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
illegally. So yeah, and loads of loads. Of, it's it's not just song of the blues and the, that film that you're you're talking about. Um, it's now coming. It's coming to the London Film Festival very shortly. You know, like um, it's called "They Will Have to Kill Us First, which is a quote in the film. Um, and it's basically about a group of musicians of which they're one of the the, the circles that have to do music at all costs. And it's not even just like you know. Speaking about Seymour Stein earlier, like one of his quotes is that music is not a luxury, it's a necessity. And I think for these group of musicians documented in the film, that is totally applicable. Mm. And so Songhai Blues for me are a great, you know, emblem for what it stands for, to be real artists with a real agenda. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel, I personally feel really privileged that they are mm. as successful as they become, you know. We've just today announced a show at London Roundhouse where they'll be headlining to 3,000 people. Ooh, what, um, what, what is that? That's uh, May next year, but like we can sold I, out. Can I come? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, to, you know, but like this is the thing. It's like it's amazing. Like you know, to go from literally, you know, I think the first show in London was Seven Jazz Quarters in Dalston, which that was a year ago, under a hundred capacity, and now mm. they're playing to three thousand people. You know, I feel extremely, yeah, no, you know, it's, it's thrilled amazing. to be part and, of that. And, and going back to something that you 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 said earlier about uh, championing championing music that's important, that that their music feels important, it feels vital. It's, yeah, no, it was, it and was it's great. timeless it was, it was it's like you know like you know for all of those kind of elements that I've just talked through as well like you know like drilling it down to its you know like kind of like like bare essentials these are great musicians and great songs and great riffs you know so mm. even if people didn't know anything about the backstory it works in a club it works at home and and that's what great music does is that it seamlessly unifies the important and the unimportant to just be brilliant you know mm. Something else I wanted to discuss was um oh that that was it that was it so big, big I'm about to drop a big topic here oh wow <laughs> yeah. is this why I'm a beer and a half in yeah, yeah, you're, no, you're about me. to lay it on me uh, no no I just um a discussion I've had with a lot of people recently has been like the streaming model mm-hmm. if 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 music how how do you feel about the streaming model in music <laughs> you know there's been obvious uh, big brands that shall remain unnamed that that have launched their own streaming website. So yeah, how do you how do you feel about about that? It's a really good question. I mean, like again, I should as someone that works within that side of the industry, I really should think about it more. I <laughs> like. Um, I guess the reason I don't is that like I've always been like kind of really focused on who we work with and really, you know, like how we can communicate their work best and. Uh, whether naively certainly naively actually thinking about it now in this context you know like you know I should probably scrutinise it more but you know I really believe that the good will out you know in terms of great art and great music and however things are distributed whether it's 8-track or cassette tape or vinyl or pigeon or um, download code (laughs) or HR code or streaming or download or whatever the hell it is I believe that you know although the industry has a responsibility to quicken up its game um, you know, I, I generally feel that it will get there. And, you know, from from a personal experience with streaming, like, yeah, absolutely. Why the hell not? Like, why wouldn't I want to just like literally jump on my phone and get music anytime, anywhere I am and just hopefully have a connection? You know, that's obviously brilliant in terms of what I love to do, given the option and the time and the luxury, you know. Well, you can't carry a vinyl player on the bus, you know, like and... <laughs> you know, that would be my optimum format and, you know, my complete indulgence and, you know, preference. But, you know, I, I, you know, being practical, like, I like the idea that music is accessible to all and and sundry, really, that it's not 
gatekeeper. You know, there's there are no gate, gatekeepers from people getting what they want. So. so, so I mean, is it fair to say then that you're more you're less interested in you know the mechanics of of the music distribution, mm-hmm. and you're more interested in nurturing what is great 100% because you know you could spend all your time fo- focusing on the business and not enough time focusing on who's really good is that, is and... that Tim's job then <laughs> <laughs> no no Sorry, t- Tim. t- Tim's exactly the same I think you know I think don't get me wrong I don't want to sort of like make it this complete monochrome binary oh we're all about the art man we don't think no, about no, that no, stuff cool, yeah. but certainly the focus and emphasis is on that and you know we've got great distributors and partners um, that you know like help us navigate these waters um, on the distribution side and you know I think the thing is is that you just have to be everywhere whether people want to buy a record buy a CD even buy you know like buy a subscription package to a streaming service or even get some of it for free via YouTube or whatever you know we're we're everywhere and hopefully people can find us you know and we'll find them you know so it's something that I've tried not to get too preoccupied with really because when we started Transgressor in 2004 um it was basically managing the transition from like you know yeah. CD and vinyl to download. Really, that was the main thing. Streaming wasn't really a thing. You know, no, YouTube absolutely. didn't exist, SoundCloud didn't exist, Spotify didn't exist. It's, it's crazy to think that yeah, YouTube didn't exist then. No, my my uh, my, my wife when I first um, started going out with her, this is in like two thousand and eight. Um, she had an old computer, one of those old iMacs, and it from from about. 2002 2003 and it was kind of still in operation but like youtube had become a thing and whenever you tried to load like uh, a youtube clip on this computer it, it just it just maxed out everything it had it just went <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing i remember like watching video online and like being like oh god i'm about to hit play this could be a bloody nightmare yeah, yeah, and, like, but now it's just like it's amazing what we take for granted you can do like, it on your phone yeah, yeah you can do anything yeah anything. Yeah, yeah no absolutely it's amazing so things have changed i mean it's something that i started working in i've never worked in music in like the glory days you know when there was like i don't think any of us a ton did. of a ton of cash but like, i just about <laughs> missed it i started working in, i started working in music when everyone was like seriously man don't work in music <laughs> You know what? Actually, like Tim and I talk about this a lot. There's this funny thing that occasionally happens. We occasionally jump in the back of a cab after a show and stuff, and all the trains finish, so we we're on our way home. And you know, when we started the label, a few people used to go, "Oh, you work for a record label? That's really cool." Because you know, the inevitable cabbie conversation. Now, when you jump in the back of a cab, they go, "What do you do for a living?" You go, "Oh, working music." They go, "Oh, that's hard, mate." <laughs> <laughs> Back then, it was like, oh, that's cool, that's exciting. Now it's just like hard. I don't know, because I've never known those days where, you know, uh, Robert Plant, he needs a guitar pick. Uh, and then there's a guitar pick, like, sort of Leah jetted in <laughs> from, from, you know, you know what I mean? You've worked with older cats and you, you, oh, hear, God, yeah. you hear those stories of just like this, this crazy indulgence. Compute, the... Yeah, complete beautiful decadence and like, you know, um, yeah, I, absolutely. So I've we've I've never known I've never known that. And when 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 we started Urchin eight years ago, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna name and shame Tim Dello on this. Please do. He was like, we were opening a studio, and Tim was like, No, seriously, man, this is. <laughs> what do you don't do it? <laughs> 
I remember that conversation. <laughs> he called me up after where he said that to you. He goes, yeah. I'm feeling really guilty, Toby. And I'm like, why is that, Tim? And he was just like, I just told her I should not start a studio again. And like, bearing in mind, you'd already sort of like yeah. started a studio and stuff like, or yeah, like getting everything in place. But well, look, you know, look at you guys now. You Wait, know, I'm like, just sitting here on this pot of cash. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. <laughs> Well, the thing is, is that, like, I think one of the things that people don't understand about anyone that is, for a better word, an entrepreneur, someone that wants to do something, they want to just break out and create their own entity. Like, um, it's really hard to profiteer because you're always trying to self-improve. Like, yeah. I bet you guys have made some money for the studio and you're like, okay, well, that means we can get this fixed or we that can get that. We can get this, maybe yeah. we can get another, you know, we can get a U67. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> whereas, whereas with Tim and me, like when we first got our, you know, we were lucky to get distribution from Major Label when we kicked off. And bearing in mind we were kids and didn't know what we were doing. That was especially an achievement. But they gave us like a significant amount of investment money to kind of kick off the label for albums and at no point did it dawn on us okay tim right let's uh this is what you get this is what i get here's your end of year bonus at no point did that dawn on us it was like wow we can sign as much music (laughs) in the world as possible and like i kind of feel like you know nothing's really shifted (laughs) and that's partly why they gave that money to you (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah, that's a good point actually (laughs) this kind of brings me nicely to, to, to my next question which is something I'm now I'm a kind of more seasoned human um, entering another purple patch though Matt. you know that you know you're just, well, you're just... No, I, I often get like I often get people asking me how do you get into it like how do you how do you you know how do how does how do you get into music what's and, your answer well my answer is is that for me it's always musicians that yeah. ask me so do the music that you like go to as many gigs as you can play with as many people as you can mm. and keep doing it and don't think about anything else and opportunities will inevitably come your way. So what advice would you give you know, to people who maybe want to get into the music industry? What, what, what do you say? Listen, it's fucked up, man. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Tim, what are you doing, man? It's, it's over. No, I think, um, I, I always think, you know, think about what you want to contribute to anything in life if you want to be a part of something. Like, um, I think, you know, when I started, like, um, for me, I, I saw a problem as I perceived it to be then, um, which was that a lot of musicians that I loved and revered weren't getting the acknowledgement they wanted. So on Rock okay. Feedback, I wanted to kind of support them. Then I put on Club Nights, then I made documentaries. And it was like very much trying to tell their perspective and try and put it through a non-filtered way where the media can tamper with it. Tamper with it. Right. So that was my perspective. Contribute a vision to it. And I would say the same to anyone else is that like make sure you have got um, something really defined to contribute and add to to what's going on before you or or a solution to a problem that you see. You know, I think sometimes and I don't I don't think this is a bad thing, but like sometimes we want to be a part of a thing that's exciting because it's there and it's shiny and it seems alluring like like that. Those things fade. But what endures and lasts is like a genuine contribution that helps people improve what's going on. And, you know, I guess, you know, if you if you create a very sort of like obvious parallel to that, it's the whole DIY punk mentality. Like, if you don't like what's going on in front of you, fucking improve it, make a better, better situation. And, you know, looking back at it at the time, I think that's what I sought to do. And I've been really, really lucky over the way to like have, you know, kind of support from people and belief from others and you know in a situation where I am doing the things that I really care about you know Um, so definitely just always think about what you can add to a situation rather than what you want to take away Mm. when I first met you 
you were very sure of what of what you want of of how you saw music and how you I, I guess how you saw your contribution to it, which was which was which was great. You know, it was it was quite a refreshing. It was quite a. Ref- I, I remember asking you, um, are you are you are you going to go? Because you were like nineteen when I first met you. Are you going to go to university? And then you, you basically spoke <laughs> to me for fifteen minutes about why that's a complete waste oh, of time. Oh God, I was so no, obnoxious. No, it was cool. <laughs> it was. I was. It was. It was. It was. It was cool, man. I, I really. I really totally respected that at the time. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I guess I guess you need. You went into a diatribe though. It was, it was big. <laughs> yeah, it was it was big like this. I mean, you know, not much has shifted. I'm <laughs> I'm extremely verbose. Um, like I think um, it was. Yeah, I, I definitely did have a vision. I, I fortunately still have a vision. Maybe I'm slightly yeah. less. Um, I'm probably slightly less uh, vehement in the way that I voice it. Like purely because you realise that you know there are many other ways to do things. But you know what's certainly been lucky for me and the, what's worked for me is just honesty and you know keeping focused and not getting distracted by things on the periphery that aren't important you know you have to like value like your time you have to value other people's time you have to look after people you have to work really hard Mm. you have to sometimes work hard about the expectation it's going to get rewarded as well Mm. like that's another thing is that you know the biggest thing that I see often when we you know whether it's interns or people that I meet and stuff that there can be a sense of entitlement that some people have about well I've done this so I should have this and you know, it's not like most other walks of life or industries where you put X amount of hours in, you get paid a certain wage and that comes back at you. Sometimes you have to work, as I did, unpaid for six years in the hope and belief that at one point something will happen. And it's kind of saying what you said about I, being a musician. I, I, worked, you know. I worked unpaid for, for, for yeah, well, my own, like yeah. 10 years. Yeah? I had, a, I had a stunningly unsuccessful kind of early career. But <laughs> I did, I did. I did I never That's had, the best way to phrase it. I did, I, I, I did, I never, like, I never kind of... But I, I really, you know, I really. But it was all development. All development, and I really enjoyed, really enjoyed it. I had such a good time, and um, and, and that's that, sorry, that's a really good point as well. Like, just enjoy it. Like, yeah. you know, people need to want to contribute something and enjoy what they do. There's no point getting involved if, you know, to your point very early on. Like, if you want to make more money or guaranteed money, go into a different profession. You know, yeah, like yeah. I really, really believe that. You know, money is wonderful when it comes you know, into a situation, but it can also go very quickly and that goes for any scenario in life, you know. Absolutely. Cox Corner. If you don't you, you listen to the podcast, Cox Corner has come back. Um so obviously oh, really I, terrifying. I, I should be <laughs> I should I should say this as well. Um you're actually a big part of like the whole Urchin Studio story because I met Dan Cox, who's the other half of Urchin Studios, through you. And I also met Gordon Raphael through through you. Is that so, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that that um, that night I first met you at the Kashmir. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. I met. No, you I met, met Gordon first, and then I met you. Yeah, that's great. That yeah, because you. Uh, yeah, it. you yes. answered uh, an yeah, opportunity to be with Gordon. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, but but you're kind of connected. So if it wasn't for meeting you, I I wouldn't have met Dan and, and done the studio and whatever. So so kind of Cox Corner has come back, and the question that he wants to ask oh, is, God. is this. Name five bands that are better than Blur. Oh, well, that's obviously impossible. That's what he said. That, that's what he said you'd say. <laughs> that's so like... obviously, so, so you're, 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 <laughs> I, I feel like I should say this. Um, Toby's, to put it mildly, a, a, a huge, a huge Blur fan. Um, and aren't you pretty much convinced that they're the best band that's going to ever? Well, I mean, you know, area? like, I think if you're talking objectively, then absolutely. <laughs> 
<laughs> if you're talking like if you're talking subjectively then you know i mean you, then yes i mean like on both fronts uh, on you both know fronts. Like, no i mean like I, I don't know it's just like look they were an extremely informative band for me but like for me they embody every trope of a brilliant band you know they're contradictory they're you've got the human interest element where like they're all incredible personalities mm. the challenges the hardships they went through whilst being in a band and then the reconciliation the, the music the daring the experimentation the, the acumen for a great melody like mm. you know they're, they're the modern Beatles you know and I was lucky to be a part of that experiencing them live and seeing them come back alive and and having met, you know, the, the chief creative elements within that that unit and and everyone involved, it's like they are a one-off. And you know, my passion for them is, you know, yeah, apparent and embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially two Heineken's in, it's no, really no, embarrassing. No, it's like the, those first those first gigs that you that you go to, and you said you had this very very formative experience of seeing Blur. Yeah. Um. That never leaves you, man. You know, I've got, I've had, the, I've had those experiences of, of those early, early bands I saw, and, and that. So, but, but for you, so having that experience of Blur, and then working with working with Graham Cox on his record, for me, I guess that's the equivalent of me being in a band with with John Paul Jones on yeah, bass. I think, I like, think, fuck I think, me, what's going on? I think it's exactly <laughs> that, and like you know, and also meeting these people and realizing that they live up to expectations because. You know that whole oh don't meet your idols bollocks to that. Like I've met all my idols, whether it's Robert Plant, Damon Graham, uh, you know, like um, like some of the best artists of all time. You know, like, I've been really grateful and appreciative to meet them, and um, they're all fantastic human beings. They're all people that you, you you know. I remember once when I met Robert Smith from The Cure at an event, and you know I was going through a really big cure period, and I was like still at school. <laughs> 70 years old and like, I was listening to Disintegration on like repeat and, and I was literally like invited by, by our mutual friend Gordon Raphael uh, right. the, the wonderful producer he said hey Toby do you want to come to the Q Awards and I was like well look I'm, I'm at school and I'm going to miss an exam tomorrow <laughs> hell yeah um, and it was quite an amazing privilege to be invited and, and then I went and I met Robert Smith and like you was know he, was he cool he just said Hello, nice to meet you. My name's Robert. And it's like, well, no you're shit, like, you're I know. Robert Smith. Yeah, you yeah. look like Robert Smith. You speak like he, him. You are Robert Smith. He, he does look like Robert Smith as well. Yeah, he really does. Like, he really, he, the whole... He, he just does up. it. But we had like a 10-minute chat. And like, if it weren't for me quaffing at that age, under you know, underage uh, champagne quantities that, I mean, I can't remember any of the conversation. <laughs> um, I, I, all I can say is that he was a wonderful man. And like, you know, I think the bottom line is, is that inspiring people are inspiring people. Mm. And like, as long as again when you meet these individuals you, you you seek to get on their wavelength and you kind of are honest about who you are and what your agenda is then you're always going to get that experience from them but um yeah but you know like i think the one thing i would say about that that blur thing is that like it was a really fertile exciting period it was to your point it was the end of the glory days the the, the mid to late 90s was you know as it's been since reviewed many times especially this last couple of years it was a really aspirational Tory government coming to an end, exciting era of music and and social commentary, mm. and Blur were part of that that scene. And record companies still had a lot of money. Yeah. So whether it was the Verve or Blur or Radiohead or or you know some of those post Britpop pams like you know Super Animals and then the American response like you know Mercury Rev, The Flaming Lips, and you know Trail of Dead and. Or, you know, then what that, you know, whilst new metal was happening, then what happened with the strokes and stuff. There was like a really incredible 1997 to 2001 
axis, yeah. you know, a proper transition of music where I was luckily, you know, you know, coming of age within that and able to document that. And it was an incredible time in music. And, you know, I think I think we're in a weird way, not far from that right now. I feel like it's a real parallel right now. I, like, I, I agree. So it's, so it's interesting your, your perspective on that. For me, I because I'm like, oh, I'm like eight years older than you. The, the the 1997 so from okay so, so yeah okay so, computer so from okay computer until the strokes first record th- that period of music i felt was i felt music lost its its purpose and way a little bit mm. there was a lot of bands that i kind of wasn't really but into. i subsequently realized um that it was there it was elliot smith it was yeah i mean you know, it was there's, pavement there's, it was like you know always, all that stuff there's always there's always good stuff there's always good stuff around mm. but that period of music for me was 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 kind of reignited by I mean obviously like the stro- the Strokes first record coming out would always be that moment that that just kind of sort of seemed to change everything. Mm. But during that time there was a, there was a lot of good records the the, the Streets original pirate material yep. the first Libertines record mm-hmm. um, the White Stripes came on the scene. It, it was just like a, and more actually it's a lot of music that I was into. I was just like, fuck, this is amazing. But also remember, Kid A by Radiohead was 2000, you know. Yeah. Which is uh, like, yeah. that That was like, what a, what a millennium, you know, millennial record. Like, you know, to enter like a whole new century after new metal, after all of the bullshit that's going on and pre all the crap but that happened in the, I think, that I think decade. It, I, I would totally agree. Um, looking back on that, absolutely. But at the time, no one got, no one got behind the Kid A. Everyone was like, well, what the fuck's this? Well, but I, now we look back on it and it's, it's, and I'm talking we as a kind of, you know, everybody, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, look back on that record as, 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 as being amazing. But I think when it came out, no one, mm. there was a kind of like certain lack of confidence in mm. oh, what's happening that I feel is happening, perhaps, perhaps happening now. Yeah, I think, I think now it's an interesting way to sort of draw parallels. I do feel like it's that transition point again. I think the world is ready for a new thing. And, yeah. you know, I think. You know, I you think should you should sign it. <laughs> I'd love to if anyone's listening. Yeah. Transgressive is ready for the new. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but like you know, in many ways as well, it's like it's kind of, you know, music is splintered off into different groups more so than ever, and you know, genre is less of a thing, which I think is a positive thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's now just about artists and songs, which I think is great and recommendation mm. rather than you know, oh, I want to hear the new rock record, you know, like, classifications ruined a lot of artists for many years um, Absolutely. and that, that is sort of dying, um, you know but yeah, I do feel like I'm a big fan of Zeitgeist, I'm a big fan of scenes, you know, they and they do it often just takes one combustible artist to make everyone in a given area or part of the country or the world go I can do that, and that's all it is it's inspiration and it's aspiration Absolutely. and you know, we're only like literally a crisp packet opening away from that happening. <laughs> you know, it's literally a momentary thing and it's like, bang, it all comes out. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I, but that said, right now, I'm still having a fucking excellent time hearing me all the stuff coming me, out. Me too. And I, I feel, I, I've heard a lot of good things. You think, man, have you heard this guy, Alex Bury? I haven't actually, no. Oh, my, oh he's good. Mm. He's, he's, uh, he's done like two EPs. I'm not sure what his kind of deal is, kind of like business-wise, who he's signed to. But he's on two EPs. Wait, I've heard that name. Did he play a show the other night? Perhaps I haven't okay. seen. Him. I haven't seen him. Someone, someone that I'm working with, put me onto him, and um, he's got an EP called. It's called. 
Family, I want to say Family Stone, or in this court, or in time. Mm-hmm. I forget, I'm, I'm getting Stone the Family Stone. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you're mashing up your, your soul influences <laughs> with, with a new act. <laughs> no, no, he, he's, 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 he's fucking brilliant. Like, it's one of the best things, one of the best things I've heard for a while. There's but, so much and, good and, stuff. And I've seen, like, a lot of, I, I, like, over the last month, I've seen, like, I, I watched, um, I don't know, Mortal Orchestra. Oh fuck, they're good. They're incredible. They're good and they're great live. And we were, I was with Laura in um, a festival, a FYF festival. FYF in LA, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they were on before us. I, I, I was saying to a friend, like, imagine being the band. Like, I don't know who were on after Queen at Live Aid, but <laughs> they, they, <laughs> tough gig. Can we actually wait a sec? I'm gonna Google who was on. Let's, yeah, let's find, I would let's, like to know. I want to find the lineup. Oh shit! I've got no service. How can okay, we? Let's, can let's, we? Let's quickly let's find, find out who was on. Who had to play after Queen at Live Aid? We should. We should put on some like hold music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can edit I'll, that. In. That's I'll, fine. I'll, I'll, I will. Oh, Queen. Here we go. Oh man! So we've we're, we're back. We've we've googled this. Um, Bowie was on with Thomas Dolby. Oh yeah. wow! Bowie right. was on after. Wait, it's like he ended with Heroes. And then yeah. it was The Who, then it was Elton John. Oh, that's a good night out. That's a great night out. But, but I, I, I mean, Barry will probably never admit this, but he must have been at the side of the stage going, Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, shit. <laughs> no, but what I was going to say <laughs> is... That, my best Barry <laughs> No, what, what I was going to say is that, like, Dire Straits from Before Queen, it yeah. makes me beg the question, Matt, where do you stand on Dire Straits? Um, I remember... So, you know when you're... I was like take your time seven or eight I'm taking my time I was like seven or eight and like that record was everywhere of course so, so you know I think it happens it still happens now you know there's an album that's just every aunt buys it for you for Christmas so there was like just like Labour of Love UB40 yeah, something like that Labour of Love or, or just like you know, I don't know, like, say, like, Dido. That's why it sold, yeah. like, so much. Cause, Again, like, every... Simply Red Stars. <laughs> Simply like Red that. Stars. Yeah, there's yeah. always one. So that was my earliest memory of, like, that of like that record that that everyone seemed to have. Mm-hmm. And I never liked it. <laughs> and I'm not just, I'm not just saying that. To, I'm not just saying that to be cool. I remember, um, so I, I grew up in a pub and we, and we had a jukebox. And uh, when... So this was in the days where this pub used to close in the afternoons. So we used to be able to like go to the bar with no one in it um, and listen to music on the jukebox and play and play darts. And this is this is a very formative music type. Me and my brothers would go down and do this. And um, I remember the the, the intro of um, Money for Nothing. You know, I want my MTV <laughs> and like all the drums and stuff. And I always felt like, oh, what an amazing intro. And then when it kicked in, it was just like the most limp-wristed, <laughs> lame thing. They, they, like, they weren't going for it. No, I was just like, you do that intro and then this. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm, I've never really. I mean, I guess they wrote some good songs, but it's never really. Where do you stand on Dire Straits? Um, Let me turn this back at you. I, I, I think the other side. Um, no, oh. like no, I, d- I don't know. No, I don't actually. I. They're, they're a band that doesn't really inspire passion in me. And I love the fact that, Matt, we've got to hear at this point talking about Dire Straits. <laughs> this is exactly how I knew this podcast would unfurl. This is exactly what I wanted. But I don't know, like, um, yeah, we didn't address what it must have been like for, you know, Queen David Bowie. They didn't do Under Pressure, did they? Like, was, was that no, pretty Under no, Pressure? No, they didn't. They didn't. I mean, let me have a look. But I don't think they performed together. 
but um, no, okay. It's interesting, like the lineup. So the lineup went. So let's just go from yeah. Let's let's, let's just do let's, it. Let's go from like just Brian Ferry. Okay. So it went Brian Ferry. This is at four o'clock in the afternoon. So Brian Ferry. That's. I mean, that's going to be a fun afternoon. Amazing. Paul Young. Pretty strong. You two. That mm. band. That band. <laughs> Dire Straits, Queen, Bowie, The Who, Elton John, Freddie Mercury, and Brian May doing an acoustic number, and then Paul McCartney. But if you look at that lineup, that's probably how big the artists were at that particular in 1985. Yeah. So Paul Young was a big deal. Oh, Paul Young was massive. Oh, Absolutely. Obviously, he was on it. He was on it. 1638. But um, wait, who who So Brian Ferry was before Howard Jones. He was he Howard went Jones. to my school. So, actually. so this is going back from Brian Ferry. Sting, at... Phil Collins, and who's that? Sade. Yeah. Sade. Too. Sade. Kershaw. Nick Kershaw. Elvis Costello. Spandau Ballet. Ultravox. Adamant. Um, status quo. Oh yeah, quo opened, didn't they? Didn't they? Oh yeah, no, quo opened. You can you can look at this, uh, listeners, on the, the, the Wikipedia. <laughs> <page>. Yeah. <laughs> Live Aid, in short, quite a, a big deal. It's a banging, it's a banging lineup. <laughs> I, re- I remember, do you remember we watched the... Live Aid. I remember it being long, and I remember us <laughs> watching all of it. <laughs> we did watch all of it. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. I, I don't think it reached the heights of, uh, of, of, the, of, of the original Live Aid, you know. No, I think in terms of impact, absolutely not. But that? apparently cocaine was better in the 80s. <laughs> that's what I hear. <laughs> Just to, to conclude... What's next for you? What what are you? Is there anything you want to kind of any artists or people you're working with you want to give a shout out to or, or what's next? Um, in terms of what's next, I mean, like you know, as I've sort of like kind of mentioned, I feel really lucky to wake up every day and feel like whether it's making a documentary, releasing a seven inch, um, you know, writing something, um, you know, like whatever we end up doing, it is such a privilege and. I think all that's next is, you know, I'd like to make some more long form sort of like kind of documentary films and kind of like really sort of expand that side of things. Um, I've made a lot of TV programs and a lot of one hour things. I'd love to challenge the feature length thing. Um, I think that'd be really fulfilling. Um, I think other than that, just, you know, kind of like wake up every day, as I say, and just feel surprised by what's going to follow next. You know, I don't, in a weird way, as much as I've got aspirations, I kind of, you know, I also like keeping things slightly unplanned. Uh, I started as someone that planned everything meticulously and now I'm enjoying, you know, working really hard, planning a few things and seeing where things end up. And that's probably the biggest shift from when I first met you uh, in the last 15, you know, sort of years is that, whereas before it was like, this is what I'm going to get to, this is what I'm going to do. Right now it's like, you know what, just savour the opportunities and the people you meet and and see where you end up, you know. By the way, I, I just got to um, thank you for not... Our transgressive had a party here. <laughs> um, and I was away, I was on tour. And when Dan, when Dan said, oh yeah, Toby wants to have a, a, a party here for, for transgressive, I was like, no fucking way. <laughs> Are you because, basing this off my old house parties? Yeah, but totally. <laughs> so, Toby, no one likes chaos more than you. And and, and for, those that, for those that are listening that don't know, Toby said these house parties... <laughs> in his house where he basically invite 100 150 people to his very small house in Camden have eight bands playing and there was one particular party where like there was like 75 people in your tiny living room and a band playing at full blast uh, another fucking 75 people in the kitchen plus a, a, like a stream of people like another 80 people like outside there was a fight 
the, the, the police were on their way and I've never seen you look happier. Yeah, I, I, I've got to be honest. Like, I've never seen you look more excited than that one moment. And you know what's great about that party? That was the one we actually filmed as well. Oh, and, really? and is there we, footage of that? We, there is footage of it and I it went on Channel it. 4, but I was banned from having parties in Camden Town for five years, <laughs> um, which to me... As, as shown by the end of that episode, was the sign that I'd done everything so correctly. Cool. <laughs> so, so, what was it like an official, like. No, thing? it was the opposite. It was like, for me, it was a social experiment. Like No, I mean, the warning was the oh, warning. The warning. Like, was like oh, yeah, official... I had to sign a piece of paper at like 3 30 in the morning by, by the police and just say that I wasn't going to throw a party again for five years in the Camden Borough. And, you know, it, but the thing that was brilliant about it is that we were making a. <laughs> I basically had run out of money for a TV show I was making with Channel 4 and like, you know, so for me, we couldn't afford a location, we couldn't afford to travel anywhere, so, you know, 50% of it was like, what would be a cool thing to do, 50% of it was like, uh, we don't have any money, so we just said, let's make an episode of Rock Feedback, the TV show in my living room, and the whole narrative of the episode was, what happens if you book the best bands in the world, but don't tell anyone, and I didn't invite a single person to that party, but somehow 250 people found out about oh, it. Oh, come on, Toby, I'm not buying that. No, 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 I'm not, I I'm swear, not, I'm not I swear that. to God, I didn't invite anyone, my housemates, on the other hand, at the time, I'm pretty certain they did, but yeah, like, these people just turned up, and like, I still bump into people that like nice party nice party mate and like you know apparently Nick Grimshaw was there and like, I bumped into him like several months ago and he was just like yeah I, went, I was at that party and I was like I don't remember <laughs> like I, I don't know if it's just become the stuff of legends but uh, yeah. but legend but, so yeah. fast forwarding um, to now so when Dan says <laughs> Dan Cox says yeah by the way Toby wants to throw a party at Urchin I'm like no fucking way <laughs> is he throwing a party in here Fair play. I in mean, my business. I, I I, mean, you know, maybe the reason you went ahead with it in the end was that I was actually on holiday when it happened. Yeah, and, so and I, I couldn't w- attend. I think the reason we went ahead with it is because I wasn't here either. <laughs> so you weren't worrying. Yeah, Dan was like, Dan was like, it's going to be... I said, no, it won't be fine. Toby's organising it. Someone's going to puke in the piano and throw beer all over the desk. That's... that's, that's that's what's gonna happen. I mean, you you are right. I mean, like for all of the things we talked about, I am you know like you can plan a lot of stuff, but I am a fan of the moment, and I'm a fan, of, a fan of chaos. I'm a fan of chaos and oblivion because you know what, like you you know the best moments in life happen when they're unplanned. Yeah, and and and, and, <laughs> and you're you're great for it. So how are we gonna end this? Uh, starting and ending is the hard thing. Uh, maybe we could just fade out to like that that elevator music we played earlier. I'd love that. That'd be really romantic. Thank you.